Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam. Checking in with you guys, how's it been? It's been a few weeks. We haven't done a, a recording in, I guess it's since, uh, since around college football started. So it's been a while. And I can assure you that the start of the football season is not why we haven't released an episode. Um, it's just been life. Life has happened to us here at Novelty. Um, we've had a few sick out of offices. We've had a few late summer travels trying to get our PTO in uh, before it gets chilly here in the great state of Texas. But rest assured, we are still making episodes. I know some of you that are subscribed to us on, on Spotify, on Apple, as well as now on Google. You might be wondering why they only put out you know two episodes in the last three weeks in the last four weeks and uh it's just life and um we've got a lot of great stuff on the docket this this fall we've got a few novel episodes coming out we've got a few television shows we're going to be covering a few blockbuster movies that are coming out we're going to try to keep things pretty recent this fall going over primarily new releases um whether it be on streaming services whether it be novels that have that have hit the market this year or or just whatever you're talking about at the water cooler. We're going to keep it to that this this fall. I think the biggest note that I want to relay to you is that uh, we're going to be changing up the format just a little bit. So if you've been listening to our podcast, you would be familiar with our format. We usually have our core episodes where Andy and myself and sometimes Webb will, will go over a beloved classic, and then on off weeks we'll have author interviews. We're going to merge the two going forward. We're going to have authors, friends of the pod, joining us to break down beloved classics uh and then occasionally we'll have some off weeks like this week where it'll just be one of us uh meeting on a related note andy's going to be off for a few weeks he is going to take some much needed pto he's a new father so he will be out he'll be stepping out for a little while he'll be back with us uh towards the end of the year if not 2023 so just some show notes um, really excited about today's episode, talking about Scorsese's classic Taxi Driver. This is one of my favorite, I guess you could call it a character piece, just a movie that is you're, where you are fully enveloped in the mind of a very unique character. I wish I could write something like this. It is, it's very heavy. Uh, not for everybody, Taxi Driver. But I think that as writers, especially if you want to write something a little bit more dramatic that has, you know, not to sound too artsy, but a societal undertones, I think that this is a great piece for somebody to follow and break down. So uh, without further ado, joining me this week was Webb. Uh, Webb has background in in film and writing screenplays, so it was great to have him on this week. Uh, Expect to see a lot more web in the in the near future, especially this fall. So, without further ado, here is Taxi Driver. I've got a a really interesting story, or at least I think it's an interesting story, a conundrum. And I'm I'm gonna give you the details of this and see if you would have handled it the same way that that I did. Um, had a delivery for some furniture come in last week, and I won't say where I got the furniture from because. I don't want to throw them under the bus. It's supposed to be a place where decorating is easy. Um, wink, wink. Um, but it wasn't when I had to deal with these movers. So 
Movers come in, at, of course, at the very end of their window, their five-hour window, show up. Um, I could just tell immediately that they were not in a great mood. They just seemed very put off by everything. They just, you know, it's, it's kind of hot outside. It's 5 o'clock p.m. They're probably exhausted, ready to go home. So I wanted to kind of keep my distance. They're also movers, so this wasn't this wasn't the this right. wasn't the first choice. Uh, so what I do, what I decide to do, instead of hovering over them, like I'm sure a lot of homeowners do, I decided to employ a strategy where I would pretend that I was checking emails and stuff. So I was walking back and forth in and out of the room, but I was secretly watching them. I was secretly just making sure that they weren't screwing anything up. You know, you just don't want people in your house you don't know walking around for 10 to 20 minutes at a time if you're not just kind of checking up on them. Um, also to make sure that if, see if they have any questions, things like that. So the first thing that I notice, I, go, I leave the room for about a three minute interval and I come back and this is a couch, by the way. I don't know if I threw that out there, but important detail because it took up a lot of the room. So as they're putting the couch together, they have moved one of our side tables further away from the action to make sure they have room there was on it i will hold it up for our anybody that's watching on youtube this this is a i don't know probably holds 20 plus ounces of liquid so it's not fun when you spill it yeah it's like a yeti tumbler it was sitting on its side and there was whatever the full amount of oz in here is all over the place with uh, it was, you know, Mio water. So it's like soaking up in the rug, going up, nice. going into the hardwoods. So I'm kind of left with a conundrum. Do I call these guys out and just be like, hey, you spilled this? Or do I just let it slide? I think you let it slide. Chances are of the of the four of them, like two of them have been, <laughs> have been to jail. That's why they're doing this job. And like they're waiting for, they probably did it on purpose, to be honest. It's very possible. So I, you know, and you never know how you're going to act in these moments. I mean, you get slighted and you have like three seconds to decide what you're going to do. Because I walk in and I see it. I can't just stand over it and wait for a minute until I think of the best quip. I end up doing a little bit of both, like ignoring it and saying something. So instead of calling them out, I just said, hey, did you guys notice that this spilled? Just kind of giving them a chance to own it and to say, oh, yeah, that was... That was our bad. Guy responds by saying, well, we had to move the table. So, yeah, no, we didn't see that. And just kept working. Uh, you know what you should have done? You should have just been like, hey, why don't you, why don't you, I'll move the table. Why don't you go over there and clean up this mess? That would have been good. That would have been. Be like, I'll, I'll yeah, just kind of move him out of the way. Be like, I'll move this. Why don't you clean up this little mess you made? I think the the real mistake you made here is you didn't offer them a beer. I feel like these kind of guys that are going to come in and move, you know, they're coming over at the end of their shift. They've probably been in and out of houses all day with people standing over them. A couple of them have probably been to jail. Like, just saying, hey, do you guys want a Coors Light while you move this table might have gone a long way. You've got this underlying assumption that all movers have gone to jail that <laughs> is, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that's one of those jobs that, like, they kind of – that yeah if you've got like you're you're one of a couple different kinds of people right like you're like a college kid who's just trying to make money on the side or you've been to prison (laughs) and like the the mover people will kind of look over this because they're like well he's strong and uh you know he he survived like three years in 
in jail. Uh, I don't know. I think that's one of those jobs that they that there's a workaround for. That's like an old stereotype, isn't it? Novel discourse coming in hot and heavy with the uh, with the we hate blue the social workers. commentary <laughs> today. What if you would have said something about the tumbler spilled over, and you're like, "Hey, did you guys notice this?" And one of the movers just whipped around and was like, "You talking to me?" Oh, you talking yeah. to me. Shout out to today's topic. But so I'll uh, I'll get to the point here. So, because it's not over, this this saga is far from over. Um, so, I take the L. I just start cleaning up their mess after they said that. They they clearly didn't give a shit. Whether they did it on purpose or whether the guy just doesn't know how to own up to his actions, I don't, I didn't really know, and I wasn't gonna fight him about it. So I just started cleaning it up with the towels or whatever. Um, so they finish up putting the furniture together. They leave, and I notice that. One of the legs, you know, you know, sometimes with low riding couches, they've got these legs that are only a few inches tall that you can hardly notice. They've drilled one in completely crooked to where it's sticking out of the corner, which really is not that big of a deal, but it's right where people are walking. So I know I'm going to stub my toe on that at some point. So it's again, not the biggest deal in the world. Coupled with the fact that they spilt the drink, I was kind of like, okay, this is something else, but then it gets worse. So I've, I kind of let myself get a little bit upset about the experience. And I just say, you know what? Like they had a rough day. I'm sure that, you know, not, not like you said, this is not people's top choice of job. So I'm going to let it slide. Wife gets home. We're enjoying our new couch. She looks at the coffee table, wood coffee table, a few hundred dollars looks, shouts out to myself for having coffee table. Um, looks at it and, and kind of lets out a gasp and was like, what happened here? And I look, there is a, I don't want to call it a scratch. It's more like a gash through the coffee table that is about a quarter of an inch deep and about four inches long. They must have, as they were flipping a couch, must have just gashed one of the legs across the top of the coffee table and took out a chunk of it. It's hard to notice because it's the same color as the rest of it. So it's not like they chipped off the paint as well. But it is very noticeable if you like rub your hand across the table. So they screwed up two things temporarily, and then they screwed up something permanently. So my question to you is, A, would you have done anything, which you kind of answered? B, what would your recourse be? Would you do anything about this? Because I don't want to get these guys fired, but I also don't want to just completely sit there twiddling my thumbs take the l completely i i, I feel well, like that it doesn't is a sound like they're yeah i you know i i won't fault them for putting in one of the legs wrong they're they're movers not engineers but in terms of gashing your coffee table uh i don't know it's fair to call them out i think that i would have just probably called it out on the spot and been like whoa and at least made a made, made a little bit of a scene about it like oh damn i wonder how this happened guys and and kind of clean up the mess but uh you know if you really do want to go I guess the extra step, this is what Google review is for, right? Like you could always take a picture and put it on Google review if you, unless you feel like that's petty and just be like, Hey, I, you know, these guys came in, it's kind of like last minute. Here's what happened. Uh, I don't think you're going to get them fired. Honestly, I'm sure that these guys are, this is, uh, this probably wasn't a first, a first time offense. Yeah. Uh, but you know, 
you could at least let other people know. Yeah. And of course, you know, the moving company is going to reply over the top and be like, hey, thanks for your concern and probably have some sort of excuse as to like why they, uh, you know, don't agree with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, why they don't have to Which is money. like how I've seen every Google review interaction go. You know, someone will comment something negative and the establishment or like the business will come back over the top and be like, well, we're sorry to hear about your experience, Bob, but, you know, a thousand other things. Um, right, right. So I don't know. I mean, I think you handled it as about as well as you could have. That's that's frustrating, you know. Uh, I guess if you if you learned any lesson here, maybe it's just uh, call over call over some friends and family next time to to maybe help help move this stuff. So people that you can actually yell at when things go wrong. I feel like it's I'm I'm past the age of like all my friends. They don't want you know a slip disc in exchange for some pizza, right? I'm past that. It's like pay people that should be doing it right. But uh, I think you're. You're correct in your assessment that I can bitch and moan, and I probably won't get any money out of it. So, probably gonna let sleeping dogs lie, even if that sleeping dog is that my coffee table got fucked up. But um, I really feel like that whole situation of just dealing with somebody that is going through the monotonous and maybe isn't seeing things clearly kind of kind of reminds me of today's topic a little bit with. Uh, taxi driver because that's kind of what this movie depicts i feel like is just if if i were to summarize taxi driver to in one sentence to somebody um it would be that a a guy like a a guy in a broken system like tries to take matters into his own hands and he has no idea how to do that and is not equipped to do it whatsoever uh i think this year was the first year i saw taxi driver and i don't know what I expected, but it definitely wasn't this. I would have never thought that the movie called Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro, especially, would it would be anywhere near this plot. Did you go into this blind? Like you didn't? You'd heard of Taxi Driver, but you didn't know what Taxi Driver was. Exactly. It's exactly oh, wow. right. So it's not really about. Yeah, you, you were probably expecting like a a comedy about some guy who drives a taxi around or something. Yeah, and I knew, and I guess I knew from the quote you're talking to me like that. It would have been that maybe it's a little bit darker than that. Um, but certainly I didn't think that the entire movie from start to finish would be that dark in it's topic of nature and like subplots and things like that. It's funny because I feel like there's a belief that things are getting more, uh, edgy, corrupt, immoral, however you want to put it, that, we're trying to push the envelope year after year. That's that's kind of what it feels like. That's sort of the narrative. So I'm always a little bit surprised when you go back and watch some movies from the 70s in particular, um, and there's some movies that are earlier than that, that are really, really dark in their nature. Um, right. Another movie that is that reminds me of is uh, I saw for the first time, again, within the past probably year or two, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. And that is a really dark movie. Right. And it's just, it just it just surprises me a little bit. It t- takes me off guard. It just shocks me when I watch some movies that are from the era that I would think off the top of my head. These eras that I think might be more conservative, and then you watch these films and you're like, wow, this is anything but. Very dark topics. Right. Um, in, this, in, in, in Taxi Driver, you've got pimping and underage sex trafficking and 
our main character likes to go to nude films in the middle of the day while he's sipping on liquor. It's it's a very dark movie. And I think if you had told me about this movie and when it came out and who the character was and kind of their background, I don't think I would have picked De Niro as the as the main character. I think I would have thought this is perfect for Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Um I'll say this. So first off, I'm really jealous of the way you viewed Taxi Driver, uh, kind of going in blind. I feel like if I had watched Taxi Driver like that for the first time, I would have liked it more. Uh, I appreciate this movie, um, especially having watched it a couple times and coming to understand kind of its role in cinematic history. You know, I think it's important. But the reality is that, you know, by the time I saw it, um, I knew some some things about it. And I had seen, you know, this story... Part of what makes it important is it, it was the really the first big movie of its kind to do this kind of character analysis, and we've seen that you know redone this type of sexually frustrated male you know protagonist, someone who's going like a descent into madness. We we've seen that a bunch, right? So by the time I watched Taxi Driver, it wasn't like the first time I'd ever seen that, and it just didn't didn't hit me as hard. As I've gone back and rewatched it more, I've come to appreciate it more, and I I feel comfortable speaking to, you know, why this is a good movie. Um, but like when we get to the ratings at the end, you know, I'll be honest, like what what I would rate this movie on a scale of ten versus what I would personally rate it are two very different numbers. Um, yeah. That said, it is it's a phenomenal movie. A lot of people think it's is Scorsese at his, at his finest. I think that. De Niro, who had already earned an Oscar at this point for Godfather Part Two, um, he was a bit. He was kind of the reason this movie got greenlit to begin with. Apparently, Brian De Palma saw the script, uh, passed it on to Scorsese. Scorsese wanted to produce it for a while, and it wasn't until they had De Niro kind of uh, commit to it that the project got greenlit. And apparently, De Niro and Sybil Shepherd uh, took a pay cut to even get it done. They shot this on a very low budget. I will say. In your reference to how smutty this movie is for its time period, I also think that that is part of the reason that it is as acclaimed as it is, and that is not trying to take away from the story here or Scorsese's directing, the cinematography, the acting. Like all of that is there, all that's good. But I also feel like, just as a movie buff, like once every ten years, something comes out that offers a shock factor that hasn't been seen before that could be like a comedy like Borat or that could be like a really violent film like this and when it comes out and it kind of takes things up a notch it naturally just creates a lot of commotion uh in 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 the culture you know what I mean so I think that while I would attribute 90 percent of taxi drivers success or or its importance in film to to the actual meat and potatoes of what the movie is, I will honestly say like 10% of that is probably like, hey, when this came out in 1976, it was freaking edgy and it shocked people. Like the violence at the end, the fact that they had Jodie Foster playing a 12-year-old prostitute, all this stuff, I think probably helped to create some conversation that that drove the audience to, you know, go see this. Um, yeah. And so I think that's that's probably a big part of of, of what, you know the the match that lit the wildfire, so to speak, for uh, 
for Taxi Driver was that, yeah, it, it is shocking and it's very dark and uh, seedy and, uh, you know, it's just, it's on a whole other level. Yeah, we've had a few episodes this year where we've covered something that was famous, probably on its own merit, but then also partially because of shock value or it came around at the perfect time. I mean, the first thing that comes up is the Da Vinci Code, where it you can talk about how good the writing was, how good the story was, how good the mystery was, or maybe how bad some of those things are, but you can't ignore the fact that there was a a conversation around, like, is it right that they're writing this stuff and presenting it as fact, or, like, you know, how they acted like the Catholic Church was evil, yeah. or things like that. Uh, created a lot of... The one I always think of is Saul, even though I'm not a huge fan of the Saul franchise. I remember being, like, in early high school yeah. when that came out, and it was just this gore fest that, you know, everyone was talking about, because they were like, man, this movie is so messed up. You've got to go see it. And then you see it, and to me, like, shock factor horror doesn't do a lot. That doesn't drive the plot forward. Um, but it created conversation. And I think in a similar vein, you know, the some of the scenes in Taxi Driver probably did the same thing, where if you were to go back to February 1976, this movie comes out, people are going to see it, your friends are telling you about it, they're like, dude, this is wild. Like, this is not, pick whatever other movie came out that year, Rocky, you know. Um, it's not that. It's something that's very out there on the edge. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I actually had saw in my mind as well when you were talking about movies that, that just excel because of their shock value. And make no mistake, like, this does not yeah. excel solely based on the shock value. I think that's... And, and we've come to find out as we've we've know more about Martin Scorsese and have seen his catalog of films now that, like, violence is a pretty... And brutal violence and, and shocking violence that seemingly comes out of nowhere is... You know, it's in Goodfellas, it's in The Departed, it's in a bunch of movies that he's made. But as an introduction to Scorsese and Taxi Driver, like, this was something else. And we'll get into it, but really, that's not what makes Taxi Driver what it is. It is a really great film. It's interesting. I think there's a conversation to be had about whether or not stories that have messed up people as a protagonist or as an antihero or however you want to, you know, view it, is that kind of dangerous to society? The obvious comp when you watch this film, if know it, you know, if you're if you're watching this in 2022, from the kind of character that Travis is, our main character, from the design language of this film, it's a lot of like deep reds, yellows, browns, grudgy New York in the 70s. When you watch this film, it reminds you of the Joker, the with uh walking phoenix and i think it is at least worth discussing about whether or not like where do you draw the line between glorifying a character just by portraying them by the fact that you have them on the film and have them be the main character where do you draw the line between that and like you're gonna tell a story about a guy who's downtrodden and isn't but he's not correct and then he doesn't you know he's He's our main focal point, but he's not our main character. He's not a hero, I guess, is a better way to put it. Um, I think that's the line that they have to walk this entire film, is you've got this obviously messed up individual in in Travis, played by Robert De Niro, and 
you know, his worldview is completely messed up for a number of reasons, from his PTSD, from his experience in the military, to just be like having no place in society. And you see, we see him make a number of insane social missteps and miscues throughout the course of the film. Um, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts about like, where, where do you draw the line between like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to depict this character. He's clearly got issues versus, you know, he's a hero. Um, cause I think there are people in our world, whether it's Joaquin Phoenix Joker or Heath Ledger Joker or this film, or we talked about Nightcrawler earlier this year. There are people that like view, like watch these anti-heroes and are like, oh, that's the guy I want to be. I want to act like him because I'm also downtrodden. How do you guard against that as a as a writer director? I don't know. So I think that one, there's good anti heroes and there's bad anti heroes, right? Like Clint Eastwood, the man with no name, is like an anti hero we can all get behind. If you're the kind of person who watches this movie like John Hinckley Jr. did, or you're or you watch The Joker and are like, man, I want to be like that guy. That's Who's John Hinckley Jr.? That's the the guy who uh, shot President Reagan and got off on insanity. He actually, shouts out, went to Texas Tech, and he watched, he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. (laughs) I would rather not shout out that, but He he was obsessed with Jodie Foster, who (laughs) didn't like President Reagan, and Taxi Driver had a big impact on him. He basically, like, tried to kill uh, President Reagan to earn Jodie Foster's love, and it didn't, didn't work out for him. Um, but so, so all this to say, and I even heard that after that happened, that Martin Scorsese contemplated giving up filmmaking. Um, so I think that if Martin Scorsese did this movie again, like man in the modern era with school shootings and stuff, like this character is something that we're very accustomed to, right? Like the idea of the isolated, sexually frustrated male who wants to be part of society but doesn't know how to connect with people, is totally disassociated and frustrated and, you know, lashes out violently. Like, we know that we've seen that person on CNN, you know, a hundred times now. Back in 1976, I don't think that that person was as as prevalent. And, And so this was a really interesting character study all this to say like if Scorsese came out with this movie now would we have the same ending that we got I don't think so um I also don't think that anyone whether you go back to the 70s or now who watches this movie sees the ending and is like oh yeah this guy's a hero they it's not lost on anyone with like a level head that this guy's still messed up he may be getting some pats on the back um and some adulation for having killed a couple bad people, but it's, it's not like, you know, that, that's kind of the, that irony is very obvious to the viewer, I think. Um, so again, if you're someone who watches this and you're drawing those sort of connections that like, Oh, this is a person I want to be like, dude, like you need to go seek a good, uh, licensed clinic clinician to like help you through some issues because Travis Bickle, uh, is not by any means a role model. Um, and to yeah. your point on the Joker, like I, I, you know, I, I've only watched the Joker once in watching this movie. It, I immediately thought of it, obviously. And it's not, it's very obvious to me now that that whole movie, the Joker is clearly draws heavily on taxi driver. I mean, even to the down to some of the details of like, <laughs> think about the suit that Joaquin Phoenix is wearing as he's going about the city. It's like that maroon suit that, Robert De Niro wears pretty much in Taxi Driver 
when he's trying to pick up Sybil Shepard. Yeah. De Niro actually plays in the Joker as like an homage probably to Taxi Driver as the face of society, you know, that talk show host. Um, so there's a lot of parallels to yeah. be drawn. I will say that I do like how Taxi Driver did it better. I think there's a lot more nuance. Like in the Joker, Joaquin Phoenix gets his ass beat. Like he gets, life comes at him hard. Like he's got this bad situation with his mother. He gets jumped and then he's like apologizing to the people that, you know, jump him. Like at every corner of the Joker, you've got this guy who starts off as like seemingly a nice guy that just gets torn down where I think that Taxi Driver has a lot more realistic approach to this of like, man, this guy is not starting off. You don't think that he's good or bad, you know, you can just tell that he's disassociated and that the city that he lives in isn't just outright evil. It's also just like a very indifferent type of hell, right? Like it is a city that it's almost like the accumulation of people like Travis Bickle or people who are living in this um, city is what kind of creates the, the hell it's like the the perpetual cycle yeah. of seediness um i just think that there's a lot more analysis you could do with taxi driver than kind of the overhanded style of the joker you, you bring up a good point with the setting because a lot of what is led to travis's situation is his loneliness and it and it that saying about you know what is this saying about being in a city, but you could, you could be in the biggest city in the world, but still be lonely if you don't, you know, have anybody or you hear people that live in big cities. And if they don't have a click, they can feel even more lonely because they walk around, they see everybody doing all these cool and amazing things with their friends like Travis does throughout the film. And you feel even worse about your predicament. And I think it's kind of interesting how you bring up the Joker. He's almost in a, he, uh, the in Joker, he is almost in a comically bad situation. Like you pointed out where the, it's like when it rains, it pours times 10. Whereas with Travis's situation, there are probably 50,000 males across the U S that are like in an identical situation to him right now. It's not like a comic right. bad situation. It's just like, he's a, I'm reminded of the meme of the uh, bachelor frog, the foul bachelor frog, <laughs> where it's just the guy that lives by himself and very clearly lives by himself and doesn't take care of himself, doesn't take care of his place. But then when he goes out, he's like trying to put on a good face and tries to meet girls, and but he's not really putting forth the best foot. That's sure. kind of what Travis There's a lot of uh, – like I love what Scorsese does with Travis – he leaves it's almost like good music right like where there's gaps where the holes are it leaves you to fill them in for yourself in other words like we know this guy served in nam we don't know his full story we can see that maybe he's got some signs of ptsd but you're not quite sure we see that he has scars on his back and those are never explained to us we come to understand that he's probably from the midwest but there's not much backstory there's a lot to play around with there um Whereas, like, in The Joker, everything's kind of spoon-fed to you. It's like, here's how this guy became the way that he is. And, uh, yeah, it just Taxi Driver seems a lot more realistic, you know? It's not that this guy has had just a outwardly... I mean, maybe in Vietnam, we'll never know, but he's not going about his day-to-day just getting absolutely crapped on by people or taken advantage of. He just has a... He's lonely, and he does not know how to 
associate with others. Like he's trying and it's not working and he's getting frustrated, but it's that yeah. slow buildup that leads us, you know, down this rabbit hole with Travis Bickle. And I think that that just feels a lot more realistic, right? Like it's, it's a lot more shades of gray yeah. as opposed to just hardcore black and white. Yeah, I watched this video talked about is like the the evil of Travis Bickle. And in the video, they made a good point. And I, I agree with this. Like Travis Bickle is not really evil. He's just an idiot. I mean, the video, the video didn't say that. That's right, my conclusion. Right. I, he, is, he's a, he is a war vet that probably is not the most intelligent person and has gone through some really messed up stuff and is in a really bad situation. And so... He's he's never probably been the most social guy. He's probably never been somebody that can pull him up from his own situation through just making calculated moves. Um, he probably is one of those people that almost like the our main character on uh, almost like our main character on Nightcrawler. Yeah, uh, whose name is escaped me. Jake Gyllenhaal's character, which Lou. is a fabulous story. Um, Lou, yeah, Lou. Uh, I almost said Lou Reed, not the musician. It's definitely Lou, but it's something else. Um, like, doesn't have the ability... Both these characters don't have the ability to, like, read what somebody is going through and then be able to, like, have enough social experience and intelligence to, like, process that and then say something back to them that is, like, articulate and not creepy. Like, throughout this movie, Robert De Niro character just seems like great dialogue and also we get a lot of great narration in this movie just showing how weird robert de niro is but it's like a it's a subtle weird because you see him interacting with some people like the higher he goes up in society like when he starts working with the people in the uh in politics and meeting politicians he's it's it's it becomes more obvious how weird he is but then when he talks to the other taxi drivers he fits in a little bit more you know what i mean like not the taxi drivers are weird but just the it's like he can he can't really level with anybody, but in certain situations that is even more exacerbated. And I think that's yeah, kind of the brilliance of, of I some think of the that writing. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't relate with anyone. I mean, my take from it's a little different than yours. I didn't see him getting along with anyone particularly more well throughout the movie. I think he's always misunderstood. Um, and then he's, he, he's not really heard or seen. Uh, and when he does click with someone, like when he clicks with Sybil Shepherd on their date, it's just kind of by coincidence, right? Like he's saying things that, for whatever reason, hit a chord with her in that moment, but it doesn't last because he's he's too far out there. You talked about the uh, the setup of this character and how it's not spoon fed. I'll, I'll go into the ten minute plot summary because I think that's a good place to to start. I think this movie has a really nice start both with its tone its introduction of travis it like you said it doesn't spoon feed you everything you learn about travis is through really engaging narration travis's perspective is really unique he's he's a great unreliable narrator there's this uh there's this novel from like the 1800s called notes from the underground which i think was a heavy inspiration for this this movie of just the the rambling unreliable narrator that like thinks he's really smart and maybe has read a lot and maybe has like seen a lot of things, but his critical thinking ability is off. And so he'll use big words and he'll use sentences that sound really flowery, but 
it, his conclusions are really weird. And you see that throughout the entire film. You see Travis going through the city. He gets this, he gets this taxi job. Um, he's to deal with his insomnia with his loneliness. And then during the daytime, he goes to this porn theater. Um, he just becomes disgusted with it. I don't even know about himself, but, but definitely his environment he becomes disgusted with Manhattan and the, as he calls it, the scum on the streets um, and becomes really just disgusted with his entire surroundings. So pivot of this story is when he meets Betsy and Betsy, as you said, is played by civil shepherd. She is a campaign volunteer for a presidential candidate, Charles Palestine, and it, which by the way, Charles Palestine is a pretty sick name for a politician. I think maybe just because his name is the name of a country or a territory. But uh, so Travis just like goes into Betsy's office and then asks her out for coffee. And the whole exchange is really weird. Like I'm going to say this and I mean this throughout the entire summary. Every time that I'm saying like Travis talks to this person, Travis meets with this person, you can assume that the dialogue is really (laughs) like that's just who he is. He's a very strange person. Um, Betsy like sees the genuine nature, as you pointed out in Travis. And I think that is intriguing to her because he is so genuine about like his feelings about the city and the corruption, things like that. Um, they go on their first date and Travis decides to take her to his favorite place in the city, which is the porn theater. No, no which... that's, that's their second date. They do. They do have one good date at the coffee shop. I think it's. I think it's. The oh, you're right. Date. You're right. And that's you're the right. thing. It's like is like he can get date. by with his authenticity because uh, it's not that he's not often. Uh, he's not trying to be someone who's not. He just is so freaking weird, dude, that he can't relate to people. So when he comes in and first talks to Betsy, he says something that really strikes a chord with her to the effect of like, "I can see that you are basically you're doing all this stuff, but maybe you're a little frustrated that like you're not where you want to be in life." Which is how he feels. He's projecting that back onto her. And she kind of finds that endearing. Like he's seeing something in her that maybe a lot of people who clamor for her attention don't. And so she agrees to go yeah. on the date. And then they, they seeming to have a good conversation in the coffee shop. But like anyone who's probably struggling with some sort of, a, you know, what it, whatever you want to call it, a personality disorder or something deeper, like that mask can only last for so long. And so by the time they go to a second date, he makes the biggest goof move ever. And yeah, you, you had it. They go to a, they go to a porn flick, <laughs> which I mean, I guess there are some people that that, that might be a, a great idea of a romantic second date, but it does not work for most people. Highly not recommended. He definitely doesn't deserve shouts out for that. And, uh, and he like, doesn't, there's no part of him that it's like, I'm going to do something really risky. There's no, irony like he's not pulling a prank on her he just is like oh you'll love this he's like you like movies right yeah it's it's so weird too even when she calls him out that he's like genuinely does not understand why she feels uncomfortable he's like well i i I don't know i thought you i thought you liked the movies i i we could go do something else like we could go to the zoo or something she's like what dude like these things are not what were you thinking um i love it because i like when movies or stories of nuance give you opportunities for maybe readers or audiences that haven't caught up yet to like fully understand how messed up a situation is or how evil somebody is or how 
like make the obvious obvious and i think that's a good use of it um and another another kind of like thing i realized this part of the movie is i've seen a lot of older movies where everybody kind of acts weird have you ever noticed that like i think about like rebel without a cause where everybody's kind of strange like everybody has like 10 percent of travis in them like the dialogue <laughs> is weird everybody's decision making is really weird um and I, I don't notice that as much in newer films as much as i did like some older films uh breakfast at tiffany's is another good example have you ever seen breakfast at tiffany's i actually have never seen breakfast at tiffany's so audrey hepburn acts like she has like a uh i mean she obviously like part of the story is that she's flamboyant and she has uh visions of grandeur but it's almost to the point where she's like hallucinating and but also but also like these really handsome guys are in love with her so it's really weird um and it's never really fully explained and so there was parts of this movie where i was i wasn't sure if like i'm watching a movie from the 70s these people are just weird because they're weird and it wasn't until about this time that i was like oh travis is the only weird one okay gotcha like he's He's messed up. There are people that are relatively normal in this universe. It's not like Breakfast at Tiffany's where they're all really weird. Um, so, yeah. So then Travis goes in after getting rejected by Betsy. Um, storms into the campaign office, the in Charles Palestine's office where Betsy works, and uh, berates her in front of her coworkers and just, like, total neckbeard mode. Like, he, what, what, I, I heard this term unfortunately i i i hate that we even have to talk about this but i heard this term called uh involuntary celibate which is basically like an in, you can't get laid called yeah. themselves yeah involuntarily you can't have sex and that's kind of like the the energy that he's giving off like sure. he gets rejected by a girl for doing something really creepy and then he goes into her workplace and yells at her um so he's starting to have like his kind of his sort of like internal crises or his situation starting to boil into like a true existential crisis. Um, he's starting to have these like violent thoughts. So he confides in um, one of the other taxi drivers, Wizard, um, who gives him the worst possible advice when somebody comes to you and is like, hey man, I'm having some violent thoughts. He's like, it'll be fine. It'll roll over. Like everybody has those. And yeah. I, I think that that's a common, like you, you when we talk about like in real life, like school shooters and stuff, you wonder how many times like someone like that might have actually reached out to someone else and that their their pleas or their um you know, whatever they were trying to get out of that conversation may have fallen off deaf ears or someone who is kind of dismissive. It just depends on on who you're talking to, I guess. But when he talks to Wizard, he's really it's it seems like a plea for help that goes unanswered. Um yeah. and I will say that to your neckbeard point, there's a really good narration there when he realizes that he's been rejected by Betsy. There's a great shot where he's on the payphone, he's talking to Betsy, and she's kind of giving him the nail in the coffin, being like, hey, dude, you took me to a porn theater. This is weird. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm out. And the camera uh, shifts away from Travis and looks down the hallway. Like, his the the his rejection is too much to even face. And then when he storms into the office and he has this confrontation with her, his narration picks up and he's like, man, I thought Betsy was different, but it turns out she's like all the others, you know, which is like the classic neckbeard philosophy, right? It's like, oh, you are not willing to sleep with me or go steady with me. Then you must just be like a whore like all these other girls that I see on, 
you know, TV and right. on Instagram and stuff. It's that old uh, adage. Um, you know, and he's driving around, like a big part of the story is obviously him driving around the city at night and seeing all this carnal behavior and all the all the yeah. wildness of the jungle that is New York City in the 1970s that just feeds into this ideology that he has and this, I guess, resentment that's boiling up. He's in the worst possible place and has the worst possible job for his sort of, his predicament. New York, like you said, New York City in the 70s, and he's a taxi driver driving around in the evenings because he has insomnia. So he's like picking people up at 3 a.m. that are like going to go divorce their wives or catching their wives cheating on them or going to go kill somebody and all that stuff. Um, so Travis does what most males do in cell and non in cell when they get rejected by a girl, which is they start, he starts training, starts getting physical training, goes into the hyperbolic chamber, like Goku and just starts doing push pushups. Uh, he gets a gun. Doesn't seem like a good idea. Gets but he four gets guns. Gun. Oh, he gets, and, and I was always like, why is he, I guess he had to buy them illegally so that they wouldn't be traceable because he knew he was going to maybe do something crazy. But that part at first I was like, why is he going to like an underground arms dealer for these, Easy Andy is the guy's name uh, for for the guns, but he buys like a thirty eight special, a forty four Magnum. I mean, he just he loads up. And also, can we talk about the weird scene where he's like got his hand over the gas oven and he's like training his, I don't know, I guess pain receptors. Oh, yeah. I mean he he's really yeah. going down like a he's, this dude isn't just like in twenty four hour fitness doing you know lifts post breakup like he's going the full mile mind body spirit to become something that's just freaking insane yeah he's and it, yeah he's he goes full weirdo and you know there's these so the original karate schools in uh okinawa they will like sit there and they'll like punch the floor and get their knuckles like rock hard like i think that's kind of cool and that's kind of what he's doing but like punching to make sure your knuckles get harder and callous is a little bit different from like just I'm going to burn my hand for no reason. So uh, he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he does make a pretty sick contraption where he can like withdraw his gun from his sleeve, which I don't know how he made that, but that thing is crazy. Sick. Yeah. Um, so he starts watching a lot of political stuff in his apartment as he's eating just like the worst diet in the world. Like he, he drinks every day, all day. And he makes this, I don't know if he's, I don't know if you noticed this, but he has this meal that he eats in front of his political shows he gets white bread and he cuts it up into little pieces and then he puts like what looks like blueberry syrup and like sugar in there and just like mixes it up like a yeah crazy he eats like a child like there's know. always coke cans scattered around his apartment he's clear he's got big on sugary cereals like his sugar intake is off the charts he he doesn't he really know sugar. how to take care of himself and he also doesn't know who he is i mean that's evidenced by the fact that like when he even when he volunteers for the Palatine campaign and he meets the guy or whenever he's asked about politics, he's like, he doesn't know any of the policies. He's like, man, I keep telling all my friends, you're going to win. You're going to win. And the guy's like, what's important to you? And he's like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't really pay attention to politics. (laughs) It's so weird. You know what I mean? Um, He just wants to be part of something bigger than himself. He He doesn't understand what's actually happening, which is similar to a lot of people honestly yeah and it's like he's trying to understand he understands that he needs to do certain things and like he could he should care about certain things like what's going on in the world but he just doesn't 
and he's making a conscious effort to try and like get involved with that stuff, try to go meet people, but it just never, it never pans out. So the main sort of uh, pivot of this movie, well, I guess there's really two that happen pretty close to each other, pivot points um, towards the middle part of this script is Travis is getting, uh, he's at a convenience store and somebody robs the place and he shoots the robber and, you know, maybe saving the life of the guy working behind the counter. And that's kind of when it kind of clicks for Travis. It's like, oh, I'm going to be like a vigilante. So then he, he, around the same time, he keeps seeing this, child prostitute around town iris who as you point out played by jodie foster um and it's it's funny when you watch the movie it's pretty obvious within the first like minute for me it was anyway it's like oh that's jodie foster so he tries to solicit her to stop prostituting herself um around this time is when travis goes into his uh his kind of main look or his most iconic look where he has the jumpsuit and then he does the mohawk he goes to the political rally um for charles palestine and is gonna assassinate him but he's kind of he's chased away when he tries to unzip his jacket so um he runs away then we kind of get into like our 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 final leg of the movie where travis goes into the brothel where iris works um confronts sport who is iris yeah gets in a shootout he gets shot several times but he manages to kill two of the other uh, guys who were prostituting out or pimping out the the girls. He gets in another fight, ends up uh, able to shoot the guy in the head. But he himself is is still injured. Um, he tries to commit suicide because of everything that he's gone through. But he is out. He runs out of bullets. Um, he slumps on the couch next to Iris, and the police arrive. Um, Travison falls asleep, goes into a coma, and when he wakes up. He realizes that he is not like in trouble for the murders, but he's now a hero because he saved the lives of these women that were getting prostituted. And he's now viewed as like this taxi hero. And there's all these news articles about him. Um, then he returns to work. It's kind of the last like 10 minutes of the film. He meets Betsy at a fair. Uh, you know, Betsy says like, Oh yeah, I've been seeing you in the newspapers. Travis drops her off at home, declines her money, drives off with a smile. Um, and then he becomes agitated after noticing something in the mirror, which we're not we're not aware of what that is. What do you think that was? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's important. I think it's more of like a it's a similar like kind of inception ending of like where the dreidel's spinning and you're like, whoa, did that just like lean over? Like, is are they still stuck in the dream? Like, it's that kind of ending just to let you know that you get this false impression that everything's worked out for the best. But at the end, what you realize is that no, dude, like this guy is still a ticking time bomb. Like this is not yeah. this is not finished. It's going to go off again, and next time it happens, it's not going to be pretty. That's what the ending is. Yeah, there there are some people that that could view this and say, well, Travis ends up a hero. He has a little bit of closure with Betsy. He's clearly kind of over her. Um, I I kind of make this akin to, I think a lot of novels with spinoff potential or and you can say the same thing about like television shows they'll have like a season one or a book one ending that could operate as a standalone but then they'll have something in the last like five pages or they'll leave something open that like oh they didn't address xyz and leave that as a way to like re-enter the story world i'm not saying that they ever wanted to do that for taxi driver but at least for your imagination i think it leaves you open to the idea that 
you said Travis is not going to be like he's not over this whole kind of uh, this saga. He's not a no. Person. He's still the city still needs to be cleaned up. That's his whole thing, right? A couple things. So one. Interesting you said that about the sequel. Just as a footnote, I did read where in 2005, De Niro and Scorsese had came out publicly and said that they were working on a sequel to Taxi Driver that was going to follow Travis Bickle in his later years. And they actually had the original screenwriter, um, Paul something or another, was working on it, came up with a draft. Scorsese and De Niro didn't like the draft, and it just never got legs. So we never got a sequel to Taxi Driver. I don't know that it would have been good anyway. But uh, it was something that was talked about. Also wanted to point out that some critics um, have speculated, even though both the the writer of this movie has come out and disputed this, but I guess it's open for interpretation, that the final sequences of Taxi Driver could be Travis Bickle's uh, post-death dream. In other words, like people had assumed like maybe he actually did die on the couch in this whole last 10 minutes in which he picks up Betsy at the St. Regis Hotel and has a nice exchange with her and everything else is in him being a hero is just like his him he he's dead and that's what he's he's dreaming of like that he wasn't yeah. you know this this colossal fuck up but that actually like people appreciated what he did by saving Iris and that Betsy came back around and he kind of turned her down with a smile and stuff um again that's you know just going off the writer's notes like that's not what it was intended to be. Everything that we saw at the very end of the film actually happened. Travis Bickle did recover from his injuries. You know, he he was kind of a local celebrity for a second. Um, he did pick up Betsy, but in the final shot, which I think is one of the best of the film, where he gives that look in the rearview mirror that lets you know that, like, oh, did they're still, like, the monster underneath is still there, um, is how the film actually was intended to be viewed. Yeah, he didn't learn his lesson at all. No. Like, he got away with it. Yeah, I think he's got very low, like, conscientiousness. You know, he's not a... And he was two seconds away. Like, if those Secret Service guys hadn't come up on him, he would have done exactly what he did to the people pimping out Iris, except he would have done it to Charles Palestine, and he'd be sitting in a jail cell for the rest of his life. So right. I also think it's an interesting commentary whether he meant to do this or not. Uh, the writer is what is murdering one person as a hero and then murdering another person, you're an enemy for life, even though I get it in this situation. No, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point too, right? Is like, it's just a matter of who the victim is that was going to make all the difference in the world for, for this guy. So there's kind of a little social commentary thrown in here too, right? Yeah. Bad reviews. Mm. Not a lot of bad reviews. Um, no, this thing is pretty well regarded on Rotten Tomatoes, like 96%. Yeah, a lot of people love this movie, both film critics as well as audience. A lot of people that didn't like this movie just said it was boring, which you're allowed to think something's boring if, if it just doesn't sit well with you. And honestly, this movie does have a lot of slow pacing, so I could I can see that. I wouldn't say that, that makes it a one star. Like, maybe it's a three out of five for you, but um, interesting takes anyways. Uh, a lot of people rated this a 1 out of 10 because they thought they were reviewing a, an actual taxi service. Like, they had a bad run-in with a taxi, and so they were giving it a 1 out of 10 because they didn't realize what they were doing. Um, That's amazing. So, shouts out to them. Uh, had potential, was terribly disastrous in the end. Good action, but led nowhere. Boring and dragging. 
no romantic twist whatsoever is that that's a precursor for a good story um i think he wanted travis ends up with iris the 14 year old prostitute i think that's what he i think that's what he was looking for um just a total revenge plot um garrett said worst movie ever wasted two hours i have no idea why this movie has such great reviews terrible music as well that is a crazy ass take because the music is awesome in this movie there's this like kind of slow dwindling jazz music with like a lots of lots of like light taps of the drum and stuff like as he as the narration's going on in the background i thought the music is awesome yeah it's like one of my favorite things it was about bernard it. herman so this is the guy who like did a bunch of the original scores for alfred hitchcock and he was known for scoring these movies that were very like psychologically driven with a lot of like rot tension buildup and so i think scorsese was expecting something similar here and what he came out with instead was this like meandering jazz sound um that still in a way like kind of there is a feeling that it gives you that's a little bit uncomfortable you know what i mean like in a in a different setting that music would be very smooth but when you backdrop it against everything that's happening in this film it's a little like off-putting in a way somebody said that it kind of reminds him of like a, a european noir artsy film and i think that's pretty accurate right um a lot of people talking about how bad the jazz was which is crazy to me um i think it's a wild take well and i think there's something too when you talk about noir like there's almost a good tie-in between that like scorsese's a huge fan of 1940s cinema and travis bickle is this guy who is he's got what he believes to be a moral code, right? Like he's from the Midwest. He'd fought Nam. He comes back to America. He's in New York city in the seventies, which is just like this cesspool of sex and druggery and, you know, everything that's, uh, everything toxic. Right. And he's still a believer in kind of how people should act and behave with one each other. And like the idea of the nuclear family. So when he sees, someone like iris like he wants to save them he doesn't it's it's very much like he's trying to make sense of this new environment that he's in and he's harping back on like all the all the things that he thought were true growing up and the soundtrack i feel like kind of feeds into that it really does like the the, yeah. the saxophone and stuff is from like a much uh, lighter time like it doesn't mesh well with that whole Times Square and 42nd Street where all the porn theaters are and stuff but that's what he's seeing as he goes about the city that's like just feeding this resentment yeah it almost makes you feel like Travis thinks he's more learned than he is like he's he's in this gross environment and he's not one of them is kind of like the right and he sees other people having fun and being with girls and doing stuff and these people aren't necessarily good people they're out having extramarital affairs and, you know, uh, picking up prostitutes. And he doesn't understand why he, as someone who's not ill-intended and otherwise, like, morally upright, can't connect with people. Got some bad reviews for critics. We don't often do this. I think I want to start doing it more often because critics, when critics have bad reviews, it's more entertaining to me because... You know, they there's like a hint of these guys think they're smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Um, when when audience members do it, sometimes it's like I just found it really boring, and that's fine. But then when critics do it, they do what we hate on the show, which is they will try to coat their opinion as fact, which is my most. That's just very annoying to me. I hate that so much. So 
Let's get into it. And I will name these people because they are public critics. Nigel Andrews from the Financial Times says, this is, by the way, what I'm going through is uh, what they're listing as rotten on Rotten Tomato. So thumbs down, I guess, is the better way to look at that. The problem lies less with what the film has to say than the way it says it. The laboriousness with which its sermon on the seeds of fascism is spelled out. The seeds of fascism? How much? Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't understand the connection. I don't think there's a lot of knock on capitalism in this movie. I, I have to give Nigel a shout out for using laboriousness and not yeah. using it ironically. Like, he's calling something laboriousness or laborious with, like, and he's doing that himself. I think is is gold. Yeah, and you're right. Like this sermon on the seeds of fascism. What? I think what this person is doing is they're seeing like uh, the neckbeard culture, and they're tying that to, let's just be honest, Trump supporters, and they're like saying that like the the taxi driver is a fascist, and we there's no evidence of that throughout the entire film. They're not like these things are you know they're not inclusive. I guess is 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 what I'm getting at. Um, so, anyways. Fun review. Uh, Ruth Bachelor from the Los Angeles Free Press says, If in Taxi Driver, Scorsese's trying to show us that our cities are becoming like those of Clockwork Orange, which she's not, uh, Kubrick already did that four years ago without nearly as much obscenity or gore. Oh, gosh, dude. Just a hard-on for Stanley Kubrick. Man, yeah, that's another that thing we hate so... in spot is when people are just like, This isn't Kubrick! Oh, man. And and I love the opening of that. If in Taxi Driver, Scorsese's trying to show us that our cities are becoming like those of Clockwork Orange. You nailed it on the head. Dude, he's not. What are you talking about? You're drawing two parallels between things that are not supposed to... Like, Scorsese did not set out to make a Clockwork Orange or some sort of derivative from that movie. I think it's much more reflective of where the culture was at at the time in the 1970s when you have literally us... Coming out of Vietnam, the Watergate scandal, the OPEC oil embargo, like, it was a pretty cynical time in America. That's the framework that sets up Taxi Driver, not what Stanley Kubrick did, like, a couple years earlier. Get over yourself, Ruth. She's confusing the setting with the theme, is what's happening here. Because the setting is New York City being run down at the time, which plays into our characters' dilemmas and their personality, but that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is not that New York City sucks, or that our cities suck. The point of the movie is what Travis himself is going through, and what he's doing about it is not correct. Um, Moving on. Robert Hatch from The Nation says, Travis Bickle's trouble was that he couldn't get close to anyone, but Robert De Niro's trouble is that he can't get past the audio-visual pandemonium to show you Bickle's torment from inside. I have no idea what that means. The audio-visual <laughs> pandemonium? What the hell? I what think the, what he's what saying is, is that this is really... I think he's saying that it's poorly directed. Well, it was directed on a low budget, but I would argue that it's pretty pretty well-directed. I pretty heard awesome. that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's awesome. It's a great introduction to like typical Scorsese, where you've got these very like kinetic camera movements. I had heard where Scorsese wanted to try to create... This sort of like dream 
type environment where you move through the movie, which he does a good job of. Uh, because of the low budget, they shot some of the scenes. They only had like seven or nine nights where they sh- actually shot in New York City. Um, but when they were down in that area of Times Square, 42nd Street, you get you get a lot of really, really pitch blackness that is just pierced through by like the neon lights, you know, from the different strip clubs and porn theaters and stuff. So it creates this very like otherworldly uh, environment that you feel like you're meandering through. You back that by the score by Bernard Herrmann. And it, it does really kind of feel like you're like on a trip of some sort. You know what I mean? Like you're going deeper into the rabbit hole with Robert De Niro through this journey. Agreed. Which brings us to our last review, which is a shot at, directly at Scorsese. This is Richard Scheichel from Time Magazine. Um, Scorsese seems to need scripts with well-designed humor and performers with the spirit of Ellen Bernstein to compensate for what seems to be a fundamentally depressed view of life and the belief that sobriety is the equivalent of seriousness. So let's break that down for a second. He says that, um, basically he makes three claims. A, Scorsese needs like perfect scripts to compensate for a fundamentally depressed view of life um, and the belief that sobriety equals seriousness. Yeah, I don't know where to begin with that one, man. I mean, what what is there some sort of commentary on sobriety in this film that I'm not aware of? Well, just the fact that, you know, our main character drinks a lot, right? So he's, I guess he's saying that all the people that encounter him that are not drunkards are, I don't, I don't really know, man. This is, it's I didn't really a, get that though. I mean, I got that he hit the bottle a little bit and he seems to take some sort of medication, but it's not like. I don't know. It's not very over the top. Like alcoholism didn't seem to be one of the things that I really thought our protagonist was struggling with in this movie as much as like identity. This, this is a very, this movie has a very subjective. Oh, this guy's from time magazine. He's a top critic. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, dude. This guy is definitely just slobbing his own knob here. Trying to take shots at Scorsese. Yeah. This movie is very subjective in its POV. And I think that can be lost on you. Like, this is not, this is an unreliable narrator that's clearly messed up, right? So, this is not an, this is not a, like, an omnipotent POV, like, circling over this situation and showing, like, the real world. But then you have, like, a depressed character, right? This is from, this is from Travis's point of view. Everything's from Travis's point of view. He's narrating this. So, if you get, if your takeaway is that life is depressing, and that sobriety is the equivalent of seriousness. Like, yeah, that that's about right. Like, that's what they're trying to sh- tell you through Travis's lens. Um, so I don't know if Richard forgot that, that he didn't know that that's the perspective of this film. Like, it's very important to keep an eye on the POV, and this is why. So might do him good to go back and watch the film. What's your rating? So, again, I've got two different ratings. Um, if I was going to rate this just for myself for personal viewing pleasure... I'm going to give it like a 6.5 out of 10. This is a movie that I don't like when we talked about doing it, I wasn't necessarily excited to rewatch it just straight up. I've seen it a couple times. I get it. You know, it doesn't, doesn't do a ton for me. Now, if I was going to rate it like as a movie critic, especially understanding like what 
what makes this movie original and why it's important, yeah, I'd be I'd probably go eight point five out of ten. Like this is a movie that I would not if me and you were sitting down to watch on a Saturday night, I wouldn't recommend. If I had a son that was considering going to film school, I'd be like, You need to watch Taxi Driver and understand, you know, what it is. In the same way that like I'm not gonna go pick up uh you know, the sun also rises, but if I knew someone who wanted to be a writer, I would be like, you might want to like read Hemingway. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you, you know, and you brought up the sun also rises. I think that this, this is a lot more entertaining than the sun also rises. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. That, that book sucks dog. The sun also rises has a lot of meandering, uh, dialogue like between people. Like you feel like you're sitting at a cocktail party and you're the third wheel and you're listening to people go back and forth. Whereas when taxi driver meanders and has this dialogue that is kind of superficial, like, at least it's entertaining, right? You don't really get that with The Sun Also Rises. It's not interesting dialogue. This is very interesting dialogue. Um, and I think that helps it. I also think the setting helps it. Um, and our characters are, like, really weird. Like, we're very... I will say this. From the jump, you're like, what is this character going to do? What is Because he's so unlike us that it keeps you engaged. Because I just had no idea what, what his final actions were going to be. The character is like a 9 out of 10, right? Like, And I, again, one of the things that I love about Taxi Driver, especially when we compared it to the Joker earlier, and one of the reasons that like I give this a 6.5 out of 10 is because we've seen this same character study. I'd seen it 100 times before before I even watched Taxi Driver, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Like, we are now very accustomed to this type of person and the different variations you may see, whether it's in Nightcrawler or Joker um, so watching Taxi Driver, and again, you're watching a movie that's 40-some-odd years old, it may not be as entertaining to you, right, as like picking up right. Nightcrawler or something. But in terms of how this character is portrayed in the script and on film, I think it's done exceptionally well. I love the nuance. I love the fact that this guy does go down this just crazy-ass rabbit hole that leads him to murdering people. But from the jump, he is not like an objectively bad person. He's not having objectively horrible things happen to them. He is someone who is just like lonely and struggling. And so the buildup for it feels very, very real. It's not overhanded. And so that's one thing that like kudos to, you know, the writer and director of this film, they, they pulled off excellently. I have really nothing else to add. I agree. It's I'm going to say it's a seven and nine respectively for personal ranking. And then for like how well written it is. I think if I would have improved one thing, if I could point out one thing and say, this is what have made, would have made it like a really incredible movie. I'd like to see there be a little bit more of a tie in between the B plot and the A plot. Cause it can't, it seems to be pretty sudden that he goes from getting rejected to a girl to like, I'm going to assassinate somebody to like, I'm going to go break up this, this, whorehouse uh i would have liked to see there being a little bit more build up to that a little bit more synergy around those plot lines uh and so maybe that mean, means more runtime which i don't really feel like i'd want more runtime out of this movie so i don't really know um good i agree with you good movie definitely one that if you're into if you want to write a kind of a slow burn noir feeling character piece you definitely need to watch this movie if you're trying to watch something with your significant other on a saturday night with popcorn and stuff like probably not the best movie for that so good stuff i enjoyed it i enjoyed this is our i think we did another i was gonna say if we did another de niro film recently but maybe not maybe this is our first de niro flick i didn't Ooh, think about that good one to start on he is the goat and it he is. is the goat 
considered the goat, I think, in in New Hollywood at the time that this movie was was made too. Um, yeah. So for a long time, and this writer, were... by the way, the writer for this story also wrote Raging Bull. Yeah. So the writer, dude, I read a little bit about him, um, and it sounds like this guy, man, he had gone through a weird journey on his own. Like he was, he had been uh, kicked out or separated with his live-in girlfriend in New York City. And was essentially living out of his car, and he was going to these porn theaters like a lot, just to sleep. Huh. And sounds like he was in a really dark place. So writing this movie started out as like a cathartic exercise for him, where he just knocked out like sixty pages like in a day or something. It was like, oh, there's something to this, and he felt like he had to flush it out or else he was going to become this person. And so he ended up writing, Interesting. you know, Taxi Driver and. uh like you said, there's this sad reality is there's a lot of people out there who don't feel very connected to other people and are probably going through a similar experience. You hope if they watch something like this that they understand that it's a tale of caution um, and don't lean into it because at the end of the day, you know, God bless them. You don't want to be like Travis Bickle. I mean, that guy is, uh, he went the wrong direction. Unless you're an incel. And then yeah. you might look up to it. This is kind of like the original incel story, right? That's what made, again, like we've seen it a, a bunch now, both in, in, in movies and in books and also like in real life. We're very familiarized with this character. But I think that what makes Taxi Driver so potent is that at the time that it came out, like you probably had run-ins with people like this, but no one was really articulating like who these types of individuals were. We didn't really have a good name for it. You could sit around forever and try to, you know, give some sort of diagnosis to Travis Bickle and be like, oh, maybe he's schizophrenic or maybe he's just like a psychotic depressant or something. Um, and it, it's still really unclear, but like we are definitely familiar with this type of person now, like the isolated male, the involuntarily celibate guy who uh, lets his frustrations bleed over into violence. And that's like his only real form of orgasm is you know who travis bickle is yeah thanks again webb yeah anytime this is novel discourse if you uh if you like what you heard like subscribe tell your friends all that good stuff as always this is sam i'm webb see you next time peace adios